This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly Warthog Man Cave in the Mellon Law Studio in the Piney Woods, rainy Piney Woods of North Central Florida here in God's country. We are under a tornado watch right now in my area. Uh, we have some rather turbulent weather coming through, and we'll do the best we can with it. Uh, should we um, lose power here, we will regain power right away, but we won't regain Internet right away. So should you see this um, show interrupted by weather, and depending upon where it is, we may be uh, having a shorter show because of rebooting and all that business, which happens when uh, these storms come through sometimes. We're hoping for the best. Uh, right now, as I say, where we are now, we're under a tornado watch, um, and um, hopefully that's not going to be the case as it's been in other parts of the country, which have been really catastrophic. Uh, we are brought to you and protected otherwise by Cram Prevention 24-7, 365, and appreciate our sponsors and our donors, and we appreciate you going over to Rumble and watching the show or following there as best you can and being one of our followers there. We are uh, really all about uh, bringing you issues that you might not otherwise know about or uh, know about as thoroughly or perhaps as uh, deeply, as you, if you will, as, um, as, you, as we do uh, try to get into sometimes here, provided we have um, reliable information for you and uh, you trust us, and so far, apparently, you have. So... Uh, uh, we work with a very small group of people, but uh, it's a good team. And, uh, of course, we have an excellent researcher whom I'm going to get into some of his uh, productions and uh, the results of his productions and efforts in just a moment. It's really rather remarkable what uh, our guy here with the Ward Scott Files has been able to do. It's really been a game changer in so many ways. Um, I cannot uh, move along in the show without covering a big local uh, brouhaha here about once again, beating the drum about affordable housing or workforce housing. Uh, there's all kinds of names for it. Um, the bottom line, and I have chaired an affordable housing committee, and I know an awful lot, therefore, about it and, um, you know, really what it boils down to. If you want affordable housing, what you've got to have is some form of government subsidy. Um, there are forms, more than even one. The average lowest price, I talked to a couple of people in the business yesterday, you can't find a home here in this area where we are for fewer than $300,000. I mean, that's really the low end of the spectrum. Um, the prices, you know, easily double quite quickly. And of course, you get, uh, you pay more for less. That's always going to be the story because of the cost of the building materials 
and the labor and all that, and you know how that works. So what is affordable? Well, historically, what was affordable in Florida was quite affordable before the invention of air conditioning. People came to Florida originally because they were very hardy and very self-reliant and sometimes fugitives from the law because the law really wasn't too anxious to come down into Florida and traipse through the swamps and the alligators and the snakes to find you. So if you went far enough south in Florida, you were pretty much left alone. And that's still true as far as the um, people who have been um, um, living around um, South Florida and our area for quite some time know what we're talking about. Um, I can remember Florida without air conditioning. Believe it or not, yours truly can remember Florida without air conditioning. Now, to be sure, a few cars now and then would have air conditioning, beginning maybe in the late 50s, uh, as I remember. Um, most of the time, if you traveled, you rolled your windows down. And that's the way you got fresh air, and that's the way you stayed cool. Uh, coming to Florida, you basically could live off the land. Uh, the lakes were teeming with fish. You could stick a seed in the ground. Next thing you know, you got oranges all over the place. Um, it was a very easy place to live in very cheaply. But affordable housing, let's be sure we understand what it was in its original form. It was a word now, which is really not the preferred word, if you would. Trailers, trailer parks. That was the affordable housing. And it was very affordable. I remember my grandparents came down and parked a trailer permanently. Initially pulled it down and pulled it back to Illinois where they farmed and in a farming community. And everybody in that community sort of followed the seasons. That's the way they lived. They went to Wisconsin in the summer to fish. They harvested the crops in the fall and then went to Florida in the winter to fish. I have pictures of them with a string of fish that would reach across your living room. I mean, it was that much free food, if you will. Free. Just go out and catch it. Bring it back and clean it and eat it. Um, this was in the 40s and into the 50s. And eventually, of course, they parked their trailer and build a cabana around it. And the trailer had no showering, but the community trailer park had a recreation facility, had showers. It was quite homey and quite affordable, quite doable. And that's only if you wanted to have that style of living. You could go out in the countryside. Dig a well, have a trailer, maybe even quite a bit of land, maybe even a hog or two. Quite sustainable, quite easy to live in Florida cheaply. This is all within my memory. This is all within the time that I'm talking about 
having seen Florida, having lived in Florida. Well, what happens? A couple things happen. Air conditioning becomes more and more available. And we begin to, therefore, build homes. People tend to come to Florida and stay. They don't follow the seasons as they once did. They tend to retire and come to Florida because there's no income tax. They can still live quite cheaply because land was still basically plentiful in central and northern Florida. Not so much in the south, of course, which was beach and all that being what it is. I remember nobody knew where Stewart, Florida was when I was in the University of Florida. Stewart or Stewart. So it was still sparsely populated beyond north of, of uh, Fort Lauderdale. There are a couple of things that really made, in my mind, Florida far less, quote unquote, affordable. The number one of which, well, it's hard to say which came first, the chicken or the egg. I suppose the number one was the interstate transportation system, which got extended into the Sunshine Parkway. And the toll on the Sunshine Parkway at Wildwood all the way down to South Florida where it ended to go was a dollar ten. Now I remember looking at that incomplete road with my grandfather, who'd come down in the early 40s to Florida, looking up at it and saying to me, I think I was, I don't know, maybe 18, 19, saying, it'll never work. And I said, why? He said, it'll go broke. There's not enough cars. And indeed, the ranchers who had the land that the tollway came across were given a option of a percentage of the toll forever or money outright, and they took the money outright. They could not imagine enough cars to make it profitable for the right to cross by eminent domain their land. Later, of course, their children regretted that. So up until that time, you know, Florida was kind of affordable. Less and less, but more still affordable. And then something very interesting happened. Uh, along came. Along came, if you will, Disney. And when Disney came along, I remember the first day I heard about it. My grandmother was reading the Orlando Sentinel and she said, my, my, somebody bought a bunch of land around here. Why would they want it? It's not good for anything. And indeed, the only thing it was good for was cattle. Brahma cattle, hardy, could take the heat, all that business. So it was a mystery. Who'd want all this land? And the land was a little bit west of Kissimmee. Well, come to find out, of course, it was Disney. And then things really changed. Once Disney came with its 
affluence. I know it's supposed to be, it started out in my day and time as cartoons. You know, the story, Mickey Mouse and all. And here all of a sudden, Mickey Mouse had become this large landholder in Florida. And it developed into this huge theme park, which, of course, built more and more housing to service it, and more and more hotels and all that business and motels and roads. And all of a sudden, it became less affordable to live in Florida. More people coming. All of a sudden, it was really wise to get out of the farming business and get in the real estate business. Because you become a realtor and sell the land you lived on rather cheaply. You really sell yourself down the drain in a way here. You'd have the money, but you wouldn't have the land. You wouldn't have the lifestyle. But it was too tempting. Besides, it was such hard work. The way you live then is you build a house with tall ceilings and terrazzo floors and a copse of trees and took advantage of the seasonal prevailing winds to cool it. They had big fans. No air conditioning. But all of a sudden now you've got money to kind of get off the land and get into a, quote, regular house, unquote, and air condition it and have a yard and not have to worry about fence and all that business. And, and so many of the agricultural people became realtors and, quote, unquote, in terms of dollars, did right well. But in terms of lifestyle, really changed what it meant to live in Florida in an affordable way. Now let's fast forward to where we are right now. And we'll take a look and see that what we've got right now is accelerating faster than you can keep up with it. Just check your own local area around here. And if you're listening to us from outside of Florida, if you come to Florida, you will not see a single place where dirt's not being moved, where there are not cranes, where there's not traffic congestion. And some of the people who are wiser than I say that we'll be soon like California. Florida will be following California. California has a Disneyland, a Disney World, this kind of thing. Uh, they have an Orange County. We have an Orange County. It pointed out the parallels. And soon it will be as expensive and as crowded to live in Florida as it is in California. I think that's probably coming. It certainly already has come around here. So here we are with, I guess, this real heartfelt concern about what to do with the poor. Because the poor will always be with us. If the poor are not just poor financially, because already there are enough subsidies that prop them up that they're, in many cases, doing quite well. In fact, so well, we've killed the work incentive. But what the poor tend to be poor in are marketable skills. And this lack of marketable skills or even appreciation for them tends to perpetuate themselves in the families because the mother and father didn't have them, so the children don't have them, and so this and that, well, you know. And we, 
ironically, have encouraged bigger families because we have child tax credits, which I'm going to get into in a minute. All kinds of subsidies, which have had little effect, really, on making life more affordable. Because there's not much way you can get child tax credits, you can get food stamps, but to get a home without calling it a trailer, and by the way, we have bulldozed our trailer parks here in Gainesville to put up housing. The land's too valuable. Many times it's called gentrification. So where I first realized how you can't just ignore the poor is in Leadership Gainesville years ago, they had a program called Simulation Society or SIMSOC. I think it's the best thing ever done by a social sociology professor. It really does simulate society. And you get split up into different classes in this thing. There are the greens and the yellows and the blues and the reds. And I found myself in a group called the blue. I didn't know what the game was about, but I was certainly enjoying it. It was fun. I'm meeting new people who were in there with me from all walks of life in our community. And I was the labor organizer. I had all the money. But we were working people. And I learned quickly that working people live paycheck to paycheck. They just about make it, but they work. They don't ever really get ahead, but they don't get behind. And they have some values. They have a family and the family works and they work and, you know, things are repaired at home and you don't call in a specialist because you learn how to do it yourself. You make it. This is the, the, the labor class, the blue that I was in. And it had unionized itself to try to get a little better leverage on the corporations that they work for, which, of course, first call was to pay dividends to the stockholders. And then above us were greens. They were middle class people. They actually had savings. They didn't live in the boiler room where we lived in the building in our simulation society. Uh, they lived out in a foyer, uh, nice cushions and uh, and then on above them, if I remember this correctly, were the greens. Well, you never got out. I never got out of the boiler room to go see them because, after all, in a simulated society, working people don't mix with the upper classes. And down the hall from us were the reds. They were the poor people. They lived out in the hallway. When lunchtime came, we got a brown bag lunch. We had peanut uh, butter sandwiches and, um, I don't know, a couple other little things in it. It was adequate. Come to find out down the hall, the Reds got potato chips, junk food. And indeed, if you go look in some of these, I did later, some of these convenience stores, you'll see people lined up doing just that. 
They'll spend 10 bucks or so on bag of chips, bottle of soda, pack of cigarettes. So the hall, the hall, down the hall were the Reds, and they didn't have much at all for lunch. The way I found this out is one time we need to borrow money. So as a union leader, I was to go up to the people who had the money, who were the people at the top of the social ladder, who were the Greens. I went up at lunchtime. I didn't know where I was going. Lo and behold, I went into the boardroom of the building, and there the Greens were eating steak and potatoes. They didn't even, they didn't even know the Reds existed. Uh, the Greens didn't know the the yellows didn't know the reds existed. The blues sort of did because they're around the corner from us. But we didn't go down to their part of the building and they didn't come into our part of the building. Nobody went into anybody else's part of the building. The greens didn't mix with the yellows. The yellows didn't mix with the blues. All this stuff. It was a stratified society. Now, it had been arbitrarily decided to be that way by the game organizer, but in real, in real life, that's what happens. You want to associate with your kind of people. I mean, there's more to living than just work. You know, you have social life. You have what, similar interests. And so we got on quite nicely. I borrowed some money from the people who had it. We agreed to pay it back, which we could do. We kept working. At the end of the day, we decided uh, some things just weren't right in our society, our simulated society. So we decided to maybe have a conference of the leaders at each level of the society. And we were going to have a representative from the green and the yellow and the blue and the red. And all of a sudden, the door to our boiler room opened and the game organizer said, uh, there's no reason to have this uh, conference. A disease has broken out among the Reds and it's endangering your entire society. Well, suddenly we realized that we couldn't ignore the Reds. I mean, we could put them down at the end of the hall. They would never commingle with us. We'd know about them, but we never went there and they never came to us. But we really couldn't ignore them. Because if their living situation got bad enough, it would spill over into us. It would spill over to us in crime. It would spill over to us in Disease that would spill over to us in all sorts of ways. And we end up having to pay for it or clean it up. But the Reds would not be able to do it themselves. And the Reds would always be with you. The poor will always be with you. They, the unskilled, the uneducated, the self-overpopulating, they will always be with you. So there's been all sorts of ideas or ideas, as we say in Georgia, about how to do this. 
from communism to socialism to charities. And so now cometh before the august group known as the Lancho County Commission. Guess what? There are people in East Gainesville who own their own homes, who have their own yards, who are well-educated, who like living there, who like living among other people like them. I have lots of friends in East Gainesville. They're, yes, they're minority from black. That's what words you want to use. I don't think of them that way, but they're my friends. They live there. They like it there. Now they bemoan the fact that they don't have hospitals. They don't have bus transportation. They don't have the amenities they have on the West side, but they own their own homes. They've grown up there. The worst thing that ever happened to them was the intervention of the federal government that destroyed their neighborhood schools and substituted with busing. They know that. They even say that. It took away their pride and location. There would be, there would be all those things in East Gainesville if there were no busing, forced integration. There would be all that stuff. I promise you. But once you took the children out of the community and bust them for hours to other community, broke up the community. I don't think you can put that genie back in the bottle. So now the big discussion is, well, my golly, where do we stick, quote unquote, work housing, work, work, work. Now, wait a minute. I was a member of the working class of simulated society. Work, workforce housing is the wrong term. Affordable housing is the wrong term. Affordable housing is whatever you can afford to buy. Can you afford to buy a $300,000 house? Well, can you afford to buy five acres of land and put a mobile home on it? Now call a mobile home rather than a trailer? Or sometimes a manufactured home? Well, not in this county. Not in this county. So here we have this long harangue about where to put, quote unquote, workforce housing. And guess who doesn't want it in their neighborhood? The black folks don't want it. They know what they're bringing. You're bringing Section 8 housing. You're bringing crime wherever you put it. By definition, the poor are self-perpetuating. The poor will always be with us. It's one of the things that is as true as the sun rising. It's just the way the human condition is. As I say, I chaired Affordable Housing Committee for a year. The only way something's affordable is if the government buys it and the government pays your rent or pays your mortgage. 
Well, you're going to put that in places where people pay their own rent or pay their own mortgage because they work, truly are workforce housing. They truly are the workers. You're not going to put that among them. They don't. They 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 know what's going on. Do you think Ken Cornell is going to put workforce housing by his lake house and out Melrose? He's not going to do that. Oh, he's a great moral leader now, right? He's going to tell us where to put it. Ain't going to be in his backyard. What's the answer to this whole problem? Some of it is very difficult to, to fix. As I sum up from my half hour break, you can't undo air conditioning. You can't undo the interstate transportation system. You can undo, you could, but you won't. No state income tax. The University of Florida is the economic engine of this county. It's always gonna be there. You can't remove it. It is its own self-perpetuating have and have nots. If you're associated with that institution, then you are a have, and if you're not, you're probably a blue or a red. There are very few true greens in this community. I'm talking about, we don't have manufactured wealth handled, handed down as you do in the North from generation to generation. We have created wealth, people who have sold the land and made a lot of money. Butler Plaza is a good example. I've landed at Stengel Field when it was an airport. Mr. Butler had the vision to realize somebody's going to pay a lot of money to be at this location one day. Mr. Butler started by selling apples. He was a grocer. Sold one apple, went to the road and got two and came back and sold two. And then when he sold those two, went to the road and got four and sold four. So, yeah, we got some wealth in this community, but not the type of money we're talking about is going to transform this culture into something that where people can afford to live, who don't, who are in the so-called red classification system in the simulated society. So don't, the endless conversation that took place yesterday at the Logical Gang, I've been in those conversations. Believe me, if, if it could be figured out, I would have figured it out. The only way it works is if the government owns it all. And when the government owns it all, the people don't work. The people don't get educated. The people don't pay back. This is just my opinion and my experience. Words God follows me right back. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on 
on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, R&R Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All these poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. Hi, welcome back to Words Got Files. Going to do Words uh, Weather Report here. Compliments of Lewis Oil. Um, great supporter, Wendell Lewis, Lewis Oil. Well, we're under a tornado watch here in the Manly Warthog Man Cave inside the Piney Woods of North Central Florida here. So we are um, hopefully going to get through this okay. I'm looking at the radar. We have a kind of a turbulent tail, if you will, sweeping through our area that should be on out to the east and to the ocean for long. Uh, the bulk of that is going to be running right up the coast uh, through Plantation Marks territory and up in towards D.C. and on in, DC, in New York, probably. Um, there's going to be also continued, as it gets there, there'll be a, a lot of snow and ice in the northeast. It's going to be nasty weather. Um, and there's going to be bitterly cold air from uh, uh, the north that's going to come down into the U.S. Uh, pretty deeply following this storm passing through. Uh, I don't think we'll get a freeze where we are. Uh, we may get frost, uh, but uh, it's going to be much colder after this uh, front passes through, and it'll be bitterly cold in the northern parts where the front is of the country. Uh, we still know that the tornadoes are violent uh, fatalities in Louisiana town. We reported on yesterday. Uh, this is the uh, uh, third consecutive day of a really severe, deadly uh, weather outbreak. So uh, uh, the the uh, um, uh, 
hopefully you'll be escaping this where you are and um, this will be um, tolerable and you'll get through it okay. Um, we're, of course, out of the hurricane season. We're moving on from that. So uh, we do get some weather changes, though, in this part of the country when these fronts come through and we're kind of getting whiplashed once in a while. Uh, of course, so we were just talking about the quote unquote mobile home now. And um, the mobile home world is um, one of the first and most vulnerable of all to these storms. And you've seen this through um, the storm path here in Louisiana. Um, basically, there's, a, there's, a, there's an article that uh, I want to share with you. For example, uh, uh, there are Florida mobile home parks that have been really affordable housing for quite a while. So I'm going to combine the weather here with what I was just talking about. There's a Gasparilla mobile estates in, 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 in parts of Florida here, and um, um, their homes remained intact after the hurricane, uh, and they're, they're going to fortunately be able to afford to stay there. This is in Charlotte County, uh, and uh, this business of being in a mobile home, though, however, uh, is tenuous because um, the uh, uh, it functions as a mobile home park, but the owners of this particular one have, have decided, and this is basically people 55 or older. And, you know, they're, they're, they're looking for affordable housing, too, because they're retired and all that business. And they've come here to try to make do as the best they can. Uh, but when these mobile home facilities, this is the point of the blendingness of the weather, uh, become damaged by the storms, um, generally, quite often, they're not rebuilt. And that displaces these people. And of course, now what we do, do we do? Uh, and these are people who have worked all their lives and have retired and wanted to take out their, live out their golden years in the golden state. So there we are. It's a problem. And um, maybe brighter people than I or you, or maybe we all get together and figure it out. But um, it's, uh, it's not getting any easier. Well, I'm taking a look at a chat line here. I'm not sure what this GIF is about. Um, twirling here, trying to locate it. Uh, maybe we can remove that production, see if you can remove that, um, maybe. Um, we're going to um, uh, talk a little bit about what we've been able to do here uh, locally uh, with our investigations into um, the voting world, uh, the voting beep. And uh, there's a couple of interesting developments that I should share with you. Uh, that you, I don't think you'd know about if we didn't talk about it on the air here in the Ward Scott Files. Just to give you a background, um, in Alachua County uh, in March, we had 10 arrested, uh, five convicted, and five pending. Now, I want to go into what those five pending are. Um, this is rather interesting. Um, there is going to be a one of the pending by the name of uh, Leroy James Ross Jr. He has uh, requested a a uh, trial. He claims he's not guilty. I can only imagine why he would claim that. I could be completely wrong. Uh, he might claim that you know nobody from the state told me I couldn't, and they came in and if, in effect told me I could. And if that is indeed the argument, then on um, there's evidence to show that it might be the argument because on October the 3rd, T.J. Pichet was scheduled for a deposition. 
and Kim Barton was scheduled for a deposition in this particular case on November 28th. Now, you recall T.J. Pichet is the quote-unquote community outreach employee of Kim Barton in the supervisor elections who went into the jail and actually signed these people up. Um, that deposition is going to be interesting because T.J. Pichet originally took the Fifth Amendment. So now cometh before uh, uh, the uh, court system. That was um, a gentleman by the name of, let me get it right again, uh, Leroy James Ross. Now cometh before the court system is another uh, defendant who is going to claim innocence uh, by the name of Lavelle, uh, Xavier Kevin Artis. And uh, he is uh, going to require depositions. So on January 31st uh, of 2023, Kim Barton will be deposed again in his case. And in uh, uh, January 31st, later in the day, uh, Thomas T.J. Pichet will be deposed. Um, there will also be a deposition of a Perry Fontina or uh, Department of the Jail that will be deposed. And Alan Broward, or Broward Allen, uh, Pontina Perry, Broward Allen, and Patricia Flynn, uh, they're three employees of the jail, Pontina Perry, Broward Allen, and Patricia Flynn. They will be deposed uh, on that same day. So there'll be quite a day uh, on January the 31st of 2023. And uh, this is, uh, remember, uh, there are three more who could ask for the same thing. Now, one of the interesting things is the public defender's office is defending both of these defendants. And uh, uh, the plaintiff, of course, is the state of Florida and the public defenders. And they'd be able to cross reference, will they not? What kind of things have been said in um, the first set of depositions with what kind of things that will be said in the second set of depositions? So. Uh, the stories that are given by uh, uh, Pichet and Barton had better jive because the public defender's office will be able to look at these depositions for both of these uh, defendants uh, since they are the ones, uh, the law offices of Stacey Scott, the public defender, is the one defending these guys. Uh, so this is going to be uh, a little bit interesting, my friends, and I want to keep you up to date on this. We will, of course, follow this and um, uh, keep you, uh, uh, you know, informed. Now, the other interesting case that's going on, and I don't think you've heard anything about it, so you want to hear about it here, is I get more comments about our covering the Boss Hart Grotos case, probably than just about anything else we've done locally here uh, on the Ward Scott Files. The problem with the Grotos Boss Hart case is because of its mediator, Run Rod Smith. Um, and I got to say, the deal cooked up by Kramer has told the participants in this matter to cease and desist you 
if I give you a deal that you can't resist and you agree to stop talking about this and we'll decriminalize this, this is really more than passing strange. You see, for the state attorney to have criminalized this argument over commissions in the first place and to have made it look publicly like Grotos and Riles were the bad guys with even Tina certain mouthing off about it. Um, when the bad guys have obviously turned out to be the boss hearts, um, that is really been now swept under the rug. And none of those people is allowed to talk about this deal without the deal being uh, 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 dropped and then having to go back to the trial world. Uh, this is really passing more than passing strange. Um, it, 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 uh, it just doesn't sit well to think that, uh, first of all, you can unnecessarily criminalize a case. Never really admit later that you criminalized it. But if you'll stop saying I criminalized it, I'll drop the criminal charges. Um, that's basically a, an interpretation you can reach. But there's another shoe that's going to drop. And that has to do with Jason Hurst, Nicola Moreland, and Bennett Harrell. They are the plaintiffs. And in the United States District Court in the Northern District of Florida, in the Gainesville Division, this is the federal court. They're going to sue. They are suing. They have sued. The city of Gainesville, the Gainesville Police Department, the SWAT team commander, Lieutenant M. West, uh, John, you know, um, one to 15 additional unnamed SWAT officers. That's some John Doe's in here because of their being law enforcement. It's going to happen. These people are going to be deposed and these people are going to have to reveal through this suit some of the things that have been shut down. You follow me? In the settlement in the Drotos boss heart suit. You're not going to be able to go forward with a federal suit for Jason Hurst without addressing who paid for the investigation to criminalize a case that was a civil dispute over commissions. Well, we know who did. A party to the suit. A party to the to the argument. We have we played that audio for you. The audio is on Ward's Hot Bulletin Board. We know that the boss art world paid for the investigation that GPD used to argue to Kramer 
that this was a criminal case. Isn't that the way you read it? That's the way most people have been telling me they read this. So now there's going to be a continuation of this. And the problem that I've been told exists, not by parties involved because they have a gag order, but by others, that the truth has not come out yet about this. Yours truly, by the way, knows the truth. But I can't share it until I have the documentation to share it. But I know the truth. But the general public doesn't know the truth. So this is going to take place. Uh, let's see. Then when this notice of appearance, uh, the date on it. This was filed just yesterday, two days ago, December 13th, 2022. I don't see exactly when the deposition will be taken. It doesn't say that yet, but it has been filed. And I don't see any way they're going to be able to stop that. And that's going to be very interesting. And we plan to cover that for you. Oh, very closely. So you've got to summarize a couple of things going on. You've got a couple of the guys that were told in the jail that they could vote. Wanting to get that story out. Depositions will be taken and that we'll see where that goes. Allegedly, we're told in the jail they, they could vote. But they must feel that way. They wouldn't be asking for a deposition in a trial. The TJ wouldn't have taken them. The fifth. And then you have the mysterious closing of the case. I mean, really mysterious. Everyone I've talked to around here in law enforcement has never seen such a weird behavior by the state attorney ever. Criminalize and then decriminalize. It's a. Uh, you can find your own choice words for how that sits with you. But. Um, it's more than passing strange. We intend to keep an eye on it for you here on the Ward Scott files. We'll do the best we can do. One of the things that uh, is interesting right now, I want to kind of take the last part of the show and talk about is a move by the governor to impanel a grand jury to try to find out the truth about COVID vaccines. And, you know, I was thinking about this. This is a pretty, this could be a bad move for him. We know that when you boil it all down, nobody really knows anything about COVID. I've talked to phys physicians I respect, and they say, 
Ward. Nobody knows anything about it. And you can find physicians that are pro-vaccine. You can find physicians that are con-vaccine. And so I'm thinking, why does DeSantis want to jump into this? Why in the world would he? Because he could lose on this. He could lose. If this thing is, if this grand jury is set up and can be demonstrated by this left-wing press to be a witch hunt, similar to, in its own way, the witch hunt of the January 6th committee, I wouldn't, I don't see how that does the status any good. The only way he can keep that from happening, I think, unless I'm wrong, and you correct me if I'm wrong, the only way he can keep that from happening is if the grand jury is truly, truly impartial and the testimony is truly, truly thorough and encompassing of all points of view, out of that maybe becomes a political plus for him in that he can say, I thoroughly investigated this. But the danger here is that we know he's on record as saying the COVID lockdowns and all that were wrong and we didn't do it here. And if this grand jury turns out to be something which reaches a conclusion, which he then uses to sustain that as an economic tool rather than as a scientific study that reaches an objective conclusion, I would think he could lose politically on that. Now, I know that there's been a lot of exaggerations about COVID. And the only one I've been able to find that I can actually share with you that is pretty thoroughly done is... um, has to do with long COVID. And there's no question but what uh, the public health officials have exaggerated long COVID and that the industrial complex that makes the antidotes to COVID has profited from the government. The government has given the COVID medical industrial complex about a million dollars, billion, a billion dollars. Now, if that's the context in which DeSantis is looking into all these issues, and he's able to keep it in that context, it could be a real political plus for him, I, I imagine. Because I think what he's trying to show is that this became another government subsidy that in effect was negative to the country because it resulted in lockdowns and destructions of economic vitality. And if it does reveal that, then that could be helpful. Some of the things I've studied here in the long COVID is that with three months follow-ups, 
COVID negative patients who had upper respiratory infections, um, that, that, that uh, found that 40% of those patients um, were persistently uh, sort of in poorer health. But you take the same study for people who had upper respiratory infections that were not COVID and the issues with uh, persistent uh, depleted health lingering was 54%. So upper respiratory issues are damaging. And the traditional ones, if you want to call them that, are about, um, on the course of this study, 14% more damaging than, quote, unquote, uh, the effects of, quote, unquote, long COVID. Um, the National Institute for Health has spent $1.2 billion on long COVID. And this has resulted in a windfall for MRI centers, lab testing companies, hospitals, COVID clinics. And the research has found that uh, uh, no biochemical or physiological abnormalities in people with long COVID. When they look for the inflammatory markers and biomarkers for cardiac and this and that, they don't find it. Now, I've got friends who say, oh, my golly, the guy died of a heart attack. That's because of the, that's because of the vaccination. Uh, this study doesn't bear that out. It does bear out, though, that it has been a tremendous amount of money spent by the government without any measurable differences in outcome. And that it has furthermore had some very damaging, long-lasting effects on the economy. I think that's what DeSantis is about. The dedication of research dollars uh, to this disease and the polarization of it politically. If he can actually shed light on that, why perhaps this will be a political gain for him. Well, the storm is really hitting right now. We're getting intense uh, wind and rain here. So we're about at the end of the show. I'm going to sign off and uh, wish you a pleasant day and we'll buckle down for this storm. Thanks so much for watching the Words God Files. Award all command center out.